Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about inner transformation, the journey to giving more and living better. My first guest is Stephen G. Post. He is a researcher, public speaker, professor, and best-selling author who has taught at the University of Chicago Medical School, Fordham University Marymount, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and presently at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. Stephen is known for his research and public speaking on the ways in which giving can enhance the health and happiness of the giver, how empathy and compassion can contribute to patient outcomes and ethical issues surrounding the care of patients. He is highly sought after as both a speaker and an author. And the book we are talking about today is God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Welcome, Professor Post. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. I oh, feel honored. It's a pleasure. No, I feel honored. I am. Um, I was very excited to to speak with you today because I'm I'm drinking the Kool Aid here. I am I am a believer that life helps us navigate if we pay attention. And you shared something with me that caught my attention about the existence of Route 80 as being one of four highways that traverse the country. That's right. When you get off the George Washington Bridge in New York, there's a sign that says Route 80 West. And when you're in downtown San Francisco, there's a sign that says Route 80 East. And so how does Route 80 figure so prominently in this story, in this book that you have written? Well, if I explain that, I have to go back to a dream I had when I was 15 years old. Can I do that? You can. Okay. I hope with you your, will. <laughs> with, with your permission. So I'd never been out on Route 80, but I was from New York. I went up to a boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, and I was really interested in spiritual classics as a as a young adolescent. And when I was 15, I had this really interesting recurring dream it would be early in the morning just after kind of getting up but not really being awake yet. And uh, I would see this very thick silvery mist covering a road that was going toward the west. I had no idea where. And then I, I would see the contours of the face of a young man with stringy blonde hair kind of leaning out on a ledge and, and ready to jump. And then suddenly the mist disappeared and a blue angel came into my view and it said in a feminine voice, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the dream was gone. 
And since we had eight o'clock chapel every morning at St. Paul's School, I would go to my chapel seat on these days. There were about seven recurrences over roughly a year, and I would meditate on this. I had no idea what it meant. But my uh, my sacred studies teacher, Rod Wells, who was an Episcopal priest, a friend of Alan Watts, and a Yale Div School grad, took me to Yale uh, when I was 17 to do a a program with them on adolescent spirituality, and I spoke about the dream, and they asked me what it meant, and and I said I wasn't sure. We talked about Emerson and the idea of a oversoul, which I did believe in, and and that somehow there's this one unifying mind that we're all part of, and so that was beautiful. They asked me if there was anything that the dream encouraged me to do. And I said, well, I did apply to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where no (laughs) St. Paul's kid ever applied before. But uh, they they were kind of surprised by that. But anyway, Rod and I drove back to Concord. And then, you know, sort of the next phase, it's a huge, incredible story about synchronicity and, and a universal mind. And so Rod got me a job in the Bronx tutoring. I tutored kids in New Hampshire, French Canadian kids, uh, on Pleasant Street, and I loved doing that. But my parents said that the Bronx was too dangerous for me. So we had an argument for a couple of days. And my dad was the president of a department store on Fifth Avenue, W and J Sloan's furniture store. It was kind of famous at the time. Yes, I remember. <laughs> yeah, and it was sort of across from Scribner's books. You know, it was that kind of thing. And uh, and and I after two days, my my mother and father said, "Look, we're not even sure we're going to cover you for Swarthmore if you insist on this." So I decided, okay, I'm going to let go of it. But I said, "Dad, what am I going to do this summer?" And my dad who knew all the manufacturers around greater New York, said, I can get you a job in Bill de Bono's lampshade factory. (laughs) Okay. So I had a job for two weeks in the lampshade factory in Patchogue between two very large, very fine Italian women. And my job was to literally cut cardboard. And Bill would be looking over there, about 30 of us working with his cigars lit up, and he'd be supervising us. And after two weeks, I got so tired of this that with my Siddhartha in my pocket, my classical guitar and 50 bucks, I took dad's gray Mercedes 190, which I think he only bought to look good going up to St. Paul's. It had seen a lot better days. It was secondhand. So I drove it out to West Hampton Beach. I had a couple of friends there from school and about 11 at night on a Friday night in the summer, I said, OK, well, I'm driving west. I'm going to follow the dream. And they were totally shocked, although we talked about the dream in class and about Jung and all these kinds of things. And so they all kind of knew me pretty well. And so I I drove that Mercedes. I drove it through the Midtown Tunnel. I drove it over the George Washington Bridge. I'd never done that before. And there was this sign. It's about, you know, again, 11.30, 12 at night, Route 80 West. And I just drove. And, um, I had, you know, the pull was the dream, but the push was the acrimony at home, and I was not going to spend another day in that factory. Wow. I I love this story. And what I find most interesting about you is you're an academic. I mean, you spend your days or a good part of your days teaching people the science part of communication to support responsible medicine. And yet there is this background, this underpinning (laughs) of the ephemeral, which in my mind is not woo-woo, although some people would say it is. 
Yeah, well, you know, a lot of biologists these days are materialists. They don't need to be. Physicists are kind of split. But the materialists, the physicalists think anything like this is kind of off the wall. But that's why synchronicity is so beautiful and, and why I wrote the book because I wanted people to be freed up a little bit to talk about their own experiences because, you know, when I got into the middle of Pennsylvania about five in the morning, I was thinking – Aha, maybe I'm going to turn around, do a U-turn over the midway. This was near the Lewisburg exit, for those of you who know 80. And just as I was thinking that, lo and behold, the generator broke, all the electricity was gone, the engine was dead, and I could just barely get over on the right-hand side of the road. I looked out, there's nothing but cornfields and wheat fields, far as the eye can see, and there's no phone booths or anything around so I did what a kid would do. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and I wrote, it's in the book, it's part of my family legacy, to the Pennsylvania State Police. Please <laughs> return this automobile to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane, East West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. Wow. I and love this. <laughs> this is terrible. Oh, it's a confession. So I stuck my thumb out and this big, huge truck came by and, a, and this guy named Gary picked me up and we got out. He dropped me off in Grant Park and I I played Villalobos and Granados in Grant Park for a couple of days and made some money on the benches. And then I got a ride out with a bunch of hippies and about five or six days into this voyage, this journey, uh, we were just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. And one of the girls said to me, you know, you should call your mom. I said, well, I guess we can. So they pulled over to a phone booth. I called, collected, and it was my mom. Oh, my God, Stevie, you're alive. <laughs> we could call off the Pinkertons. Oh, wow. And I said – and this, is, this was bad. Okay, this only an adolescent can say this. I said, Mom. Why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? Oh, God. That was so bad. Wow. And, and she said, we got your note. We should have let you teach in the Bronx. You were pretty dead set on it. Uh, where are you headed? I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to San Francisco. And uh, do you have Cousin George's address? So my cousin George lived in the Mission District on Chenery Street and was a Vietnam vet. And so I made my way out there and, and I, I spent the summer, I was in the Nietzsche and Shoshu Buddhist community on Market and Chanery and Channing Nanyo Ho Renge Kyo and it was very <laughs> mystical and I had this old guy named Gus who'd been interned in Hawaii during the war, a Japanese uh, gentleman and I, he would follow me around and we'd go to Hispanic restaurants across the district and I'd play guitar and I made a lot of money and I was never going back to college. I was never going to college. I didn't think I needed it. But then I drew a really bad number in the draft lottery and I called the people at Reed because I told them, you know, I was going to go to Swarthmore. But I said, look, I want to come up there. I, I know I told you I wasn't coming, but can you open up a spot for me? Which they did. And then early September, in front of the temple on Market Street with Gus and Cousin George and five or six other people, they gave me a Gahone zone. Now, this is like really key. It's like a scroll. It's about four feet long. It's got a lot of symbols on it. Gus had explained those to me, universal mind, interconnectedness, uh, and lots of different ideas in it. And uh, ultimate reality is one of the symbols. So I thanked everybody. I put it in my backpack. 
took the Market Street bus, took it toward Golden Gate Park, walked across the park, walked up the Golden Gate Bridge at 7 in the morning, and it's like totally foggy and misty and gray. And I honestly couldn't see more than about three feet in front of me. I was on that left-hand side, the pedestrian side. And at that time, you know, they just had a low railing about even waist high would be an exaggeration. And there were no nets or anything. And there were a lot of people who jumped off the bridge, you know. So I got about halfway across the bridge and I heard a ruffling to my left. And I kind of looked and I, I, I made out the contours of the face of a young guy with dirty blonde hair. And uh, he was only about three feet away. Uh, and he was like totally sh- – he saw me out of the corner of his eye. He was like totally indignant and I just said to him, I truly hope that you are not planning to jump. And then he screamed. He just screamed. He screamed like – you know, he actually quoted Macbeth, life is empty, nothingness and, and, and you know, all kinds of expletives deleted. And I said, wait a minute. I got to tell you something. I think somehow or another – I was called to meet you here. I don't understand it, but I had a dream 3,000 miles away two years ago, and somehow I think you were in it. Stephen, we are going to need to take a break, and we're going to come back with Master Storyteller. (laughs) That's one of your many hats, Stephen. Professor Stephen G. Post. We're talking about his book, God and Love on Route 80. The Hidden Mysteries of Human Connectedness. To learn more about Stephen's work, please visit stephengpost.com. And Stephen is spelled with a P-H and there is a G, stephengpost.com. On Twitter at Stephen G. Post and on Facebook, that page is Stephen period post. Here comes the break. We'll be right back for more of this incredible story. That is a promise. Just a second. Before the little break, I want to ask you how you amuse yourself when you've got some spare time. One of my harmless obsessions is Best Fiends, a free downloadable app with more than 100 million downloads that is a seriously good fun way to redirect my busy brain and relieve a little stress right from my smartphone. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles to solve, characters to collect, and new levels that are added all the time. Playing Best Fiends allows me socially distanced play with my kids and friends in different cities and with new people also in pursuit of a little competitive play. I'm happily hooked, and if you're anything like me, you will be too. Don't miss out on this must-play game that is all the rage. I spend a few delightful minutes each day to focus my attention on this highly engaging digital universe that challenges my skills. Best Fiends gives my brain a rest from the daily routine, and transports me to another colorful realm that is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike any other out there in cyberspace. In fact, I play while waiting in lines, and sometimes I steal a few minutes for myself between virtual meetings. No Wi-Fi or cell data service required. So why not join me in my happy, harmless obsession over at Best Fiends? Best Fiends has thousands of levels already, with new levels, events, and characters added every month. It's hours of fun right at your fingertips, and you can even play offline. With over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews, Best Fiends is a must-play. 
Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. about inner transformation, the journey to giving more and living better. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest today, Stephen G. Post. And Stephen, you're going to return to the story of being on the bridge and the Blue Angel with this young yeah. man. Absolutely. So <laughs> You've got me was, sitting on the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, he was completely adamant and he's leaning over the ledge. And I say, look, I want to tell you, I honestly think that I was guided here by this uh, oversoak. Uh, you know, I used Emerson's language because I just, you know, it was 3,000 miles away two years ago. I had this dream recurring and you were in it. And I, and, I, and then he let me tell him the whole story, the dreams, going to Yale Divinity School to talk about it, the arguing with my folks, the Mercedes, leaving it on 190, the note to the Pennsylvania State, everything. And he said, wow, you are really crazy. And I said, well, we're not that different. You know, we're all kind of desperate looking for meaning in life. And we started to strike up a good rapport. And then I, he said he started to settle down. And I said, so um, I got something for you in my backpack. <laughs> so <laughs> I pulled my Gahon zone out of my backpack. And uh, I said, this is a Gahon zone. And I just got it this morning at the temple. And if I give this to you, you're going to have good luck the rest of your life. It'll turn everything around. I'm supposed to get bad luck if I give it to you, but I'm going to give it to you. So he, I said, now, if you, if you step over the railing and come over where I am, I'll unscroll it and I'll explain it to you. So believe it or not, he had settled down enough and he came across. Wow. And I unscrolled this thing and I explained the symbols, you know, like, you know, the, the, the symbol for busy in Japanese is a heart with a line through it, no heart and, and, and universal mind and, and all these beautiful things. And I said, look, I'm going to give this to you. His name was Harry. But I said, there's a condition. You have to walk south on the bridge. You have to walk across the park. You have to take this note, which is in the book, to my cousin George. This is Harry. He needs a shower. Please let him sleep on the pool where I was sleeping. Bring him down to Gus's at the temple and let Gus look after him and see what you can do. And uh, so we parted. We shook hands. And, and Harry, by this point, had calmed down a lot. And I went north on the bridge because I was going up to Portland, Oregon to read. And as I'm walking that bridge, that big span, you know, um, I'm just thinking to myself, you know, this is the most uncanny thing that I've ever experienced. I wasn't sure if, it, if the dream meant anything when I was 15 years old and I had this dream six or seven times. I, I mean, what, what was it just me on a dyspeptic day? Was I working off too many demerits at St. Paul's raking leaves <laughs> in the sun? You know, what was it, you know? But, but now I felt, hey, you know, there's a real mystery to human consciousness. And, and this was so vivid and so real and it was so meant to be. And it was a perfect example because I'd read a lot of Jung with Rod Wells. And, and so I knew, I knew what synchronicity was and, and, and premonition and this idea that we're much more connected than we – but I felt totally uplifted 
walking across that that, that bridge going north because I thought we're so much more cherished in this life than we know. And if we'd only kind of stop and notice it. So then I got a ride with a farmer's truck up to up to Oregon. And that's a whole nother story. And then there are like 11 other episodes of synchronicity, which have been amazing in my life. Even though I've had day jobs University of Chicago Medical School, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Case Western Med 20 years, et cetera, and hung around with a lot of scientists and biologists, I've totally believed in the idea of non-local mind and non-local consciousness. And I don't think the brain is just uh, derived from tissues and matter and so forth. There are two things I want to ask you about. One is, did Harry see Gus? He did. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see Harry again. Uh, you know, I went back at Thanksgiving. I, I came down from Reed to San Francisco and I spent the holidays with George um, in his apartment. And Harry had gone back to North Carolina where he was from. He was doing pretty well. I kind of think he was very drugged up that morning that I met him, you know. And uh, I've, I never interacted with him. We, you know, we didn't know where he went. But, you know, a lot of people knew Harry and talked about him and from that summer, and I hope he's well. But that was an amazing moment because I, I, I you know, and I was just 17. So I guess, and I, over, you know, I, over the course of my life, I've probably done a lot of work in adolescent psychiatry more than a lot of people. I'm not a psychiatrist, but oftentimes they call me in to work with adolescents, and I have saved a couple of other young guys. Well, it sounds like you had an awakening at 17 that was spiritual in part, but it was really about sort of rocking your consciousness about the, the, this field that is invisible and yet very binding uh, of us to one another. Yeah, I'm okay with this uh, this Sheldrake idea of of, uh, of fields, you know, and that somehow there are these fields of love energy that for reasons we don't quite know connect us. I mean, when I was up in Oregon, I, I was up in Oregon in the days of jobs. He slept on my floor and stuff. And, 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 and you know, late in, late in January, uh, this guy came bounding into the coffee shop looked pretty wild. It was late at night. He said, I've got a new Harley Davidson uh, shovelhead motorcycle who wants to go for a ride. I volunteered. <laughs> it was it was rainy and slushy. And he took off. His name was Andy. And he, he went through every stop sign, every red light in Portland, went down on the Pacific Coast Highway, hit 180. And I was crying. I was weeping. I was begging him to let me off because I thought I was dead. He was slipping and sliding. And then lo and behold, he did this incredible U-turn. He went back, same speed of light, dropped me off right here, picked me up. And I walked across the ravine to Ackerman Dormitory where I lived. Just, I never never answered the payphone ever. But just as I walked across the threshold, the payphone on the wall rang and I felt literally pushed. I don't know how, just pushed to pick it up. I picked, I, hello, it was my mom. What? And she, and, 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 and she said, oh, Stevie, you're alive. I had this incredible premonition. I woke up. I was sweating. I was so filled with fear. I thought you were dead. And I said, Mom, I thought I was dead too. And so it was another case for me of how, in this case, a mother's love for a son, you know, and anxiety too, you know, but, but uh, how that can go way beyond time and, and, and space and materiality and that there's a mystery to this that we just um, we need to come to terms with. I'm over here going like, that's a wow. That is a wow. And how you seem to magnetize these magnificent events 
in your life? Hey, I, I, I took a course on Alchemy 101 with Jobs, and it was a combination of quantum physics <laughs> and medieval science. Just FYI. Okay? FYI, yeah. It yeah. doesn't surprise me. You are a, a very unique person because you are at the confluence of all of these aspects, you know, sort of the uh, reality-based or earth-based belief and study, and then the things that we can't see, the quantum. Well, the physicists, you know, a lot, a lot of the physicists and mathematicians believe in this, this force that we can't see, and, and they win Templeton prizes and things like that, you know. The biologists, you know, they're more materialist because that's just their ideology. But I, I do believe there's kind of an opening, and I want people to be free. I realize there are hard times in life, but even then, you know, keep noticing, keep keep being aware of the winks and I call them whispers in God and Love on Route 80, the whispers that just point to a kind of cherishing energy in this universe. I was sitting here in my office in the med school like three years ago and this young gal, she was a med student. She was really struggling. She was from Queens. She was Korean American. She wasn't fitting in very well. She wanted to leave the school and I, and she came into my office unannounced and I had all kinds of appointments that day. This isn't in the book, but I, I said, look, I'll talk to you, but maybe email me and we'll get together in a few days. But then I looked over my shoulder because I felt this incredible energy and it wasn't visible. I couldn't see it, but it was a really powerful thing. And it just made me feel like I have to completely in a mindful, attentive way look after this young woman, which I did. So I canceled my appointments. I spent the afternoon with her. And ultimately, you know, I, for a year, she was on, she was a mentee of mine and she, she left med school, but she wrote beautiful essays about her adjustment to professional life and how she grew up poor. And we became very good uh, good friends, and I would visit her every month in, in on 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 Northern Boulevard in Queens, and 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 she's now practicing preventive medicine, and she's doing really beautifully. But there was a this incredible force that wasn't me; it wasn't coming from from me, but it was like an invasion. It was it was sort of irresistible, and it just got me to thinking. You know, I have to look after this person, even though I don't know her. Yeah. Well. You know, and that really touches on the belief that we are our brother's keeper. And I don't mean that, that we tell we tell our brother what to do, but that the, the welfare of everyone else matters just as much as our own. Yeah, and absolutely. And, that, and so I have a definition of love that I picked up from a psychiatrist at the University of Chicago. I, I eventually quit immunology and I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School and I studied with Joseph Campbell and oh, Mercer wow. Eliade when he was writing shamanism and all those kinds of people. Chick, uh, Chick sent me high when he was writing flow. So, I mean, I hung out in the world religions crowd there. And then I gravitated into medical schools, teaching medical humanities and compassionate care. And I've been doing that for all these years. But I, but people wonder, so why do you do what you do? And I the only do, I do what I do. My life is, I would have been a, a lawyer on Wall Street or an investor if I hadn't had a dream. And if I hadn't worked in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory, and if the car had <laughs> down. If only. You know, yeah. We are out of time and you, you must come back and hang out with me because you have mentioned you're working beside two of my most favorite people, one of which is uh, deceased but a mentor, posthumously, that being Joseph Campbell. But uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi is my mentor. Oh. He has 
been a supporter of my work for the past 12 years, which is so cool. Yeah, well, he was writing Flow uh, in Chicago when I was there. He wasn't really a close mentor of mine, but I knew him and and I followed his work. I mean, I was more into the history of religions. He was in the psychology department, but we crossed paths quite a bit. And then uh, I met him uh, again in uh, in 2000 because I introduced Marty Seligman to uh, Sir John Templeton, uh, and and that's really how Positive Sight got funded. So so. Chick Sent Me High was in the first summer program of uh, positive psychology at, at uh, Penn, and come, I was the token spiritualist. <laughs> come back and hang out. We have so much more to talk about. We're talking about Professor Stephen G. Post's book, God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. To connect with him and learn more about his work, please visit Stephen G. Post.com, and it is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G post.com on Twitter at Stephen G post and on Facebook. That page is Stephen period post professor post hats off to you. I love your stories. Come back and hang out with me. And I really mean that. <laughs> well, anytime you just let me know. Okay. Yeah. Route 80, you know, <laughs> Route 80. And actually the challenge for our listeners is go find Route 80, wherever that yeah. may be. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my favorite saying is from Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Here comes a brief pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. are back continuing the conversation about inner transformation, the journey to giving more and living better. My next guest is Isaac Bentwich. He is a longtime practitioner and teacher of yoga and meditation. He's also a medical doctor trained as both physician and scientist. He has founded three life sciences technology companies, leading revolutions in medicine, genomics, and environmental conservation. He has written a book or translated a text, I should say, is more appropriately entitled Gita, A Timeless Guide for Our Time. Welcome, Isaac. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It is a pleasure because I, I want to introduce this great document to our listeners who may or may not for, be familiar with what the Bhagavad Gita really is. Yes, well, it's a uh, uh, this uh, this book has been a passion of mine for uh, for many years, and uh, is really a, a a core text of uh, uh, of spirituality, uh, um, I guess. But but I'm, I'm sure we can talk more about that. Uh, well, I want to learn a little bit more about your position as a medical doctor and a scientist, and how the uh, technology and information contained in this ancient script, how you apply it when you work with patients. 
Okay. First, perhaps let me let me say a few words about what the Gita is for Please, those uh, yes. of us who, who are not uh, familiar with this uh, text. So, uh, the Gita, formerly um, um, with its formal name Bhagavad Gita, but fondly referred as as Gita, um, uh, is an old uh, ancient text, uh, two thousand five hundred years uh, old from India, uh, and it is considered one of the the greatest, uh, most reliable. Uh, texts for uh, inner journey, meditation, and guide for happiness. So the, the text itself is a, a dialogue between a master and a disciple. The master um, is a, a, the disciple is a prince, an Indian prince called Arjuna, uh, who is about to, um, who is forced into battle uh, with uh, family members uh, out to kill him. Uh, being a pacifist and the spiritual seeker, he is revolted by the idea of, of fighting and he turns uh, to his um, friend, his charioteer, uh, and his master, and no, no less than God incarnate, um, Krishna. So the, the, the Gita is this freeze frame just as the battle is about to erupt uh, and a dialogue. Uh, imagine if you had the, the opportunity to have a, a nice afternoon chat with God. Um, hey God, what what is all this about? What should I do about life? What is the path or the paths to happiness, etc.? How do I uh, handle the the challenges that life is throwing my way? Uh, this is what the Gita is about, and the entire dialogue uh, uh, starts at the, this uh, with the the backdrop of this uh, battle, uh, which uh, in a sense uh, reflects uh, is relevant to us as well because it. It, uh, it relates to the battlefields of our lives, our daily battlefields at work, uh, in relationships, uh, uh, in parenting, in uh, spiritual seeking. These are the battlefields uh, that, that we uh, have to deal with. And, and so this is a, that's why it's such a, a timeless uh, guide with a very impressive list of, of people, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, most uh, significant, brilliant minds uh, and, and uh, poets and thinkers uh, throughout history. Beethoven scribbled the verse of the Gita in his uh, diary. Leonard Cohen speaks about it. Uh, George Harrison sang uh, of it. Um, quantum physicists uh, um, consulted the philosophy of the Gita, uh, uh, and and so on and so forth. So um, here we are with this uh, book as a, a handy uh, guide um, on our spiritual uh, journey. What attracted you to want to write about the Gita? It's one thing to study it to use it in one's life. Um, uh, there have been others before you who have taken this document and translated it into many forms. What was yeah. it that called to you? Well, funnily enough, my first interaction with the Gita um, wasn't a very pleasant one. I was uh, doing a month long, uh, this is uh, some 32 years uh, back, I was doing a month long uh, uh, yoga and meditation course, and I loved everything about it except the the hour of gita every day every day which i i hated i did not relate <laughs> to this uh, battlefield and mythology I'm, I'm i was born into the jewish tradition i have very strong uh, uh, reverence and and the uh, and connection with uh, christianity 
Um, I did not feel a, a, an attraction to Indian mythology as, as such, and uh, so I, I really didn't uh, uh, connect. And uh, uh, gradually, uh, Gita really became a, a great love of my life and uh, and an inner uh, compass, uh, if you will. And so I began writing it simply as my own dharma, as my own practice, not with a a, a goal of the of public it or translating it uh, and it was a process that uh, spanned uh, eventually 12 years and I became the more I, I uh, went into it uh, the more I was mesmerized by the uh, melodiousness of it and and by the the direct eye level approach uh, you know here is something that uh, a text that touches the deepest uh, philosophical uh, questions but does so without any philosophizing and um, um, with the urgency of of a dialogue at the battlefield you know if you're on a battlefield uh, you have no zero tolerance for BS or for philosophy. Um, yeah, that's and that's very uh, relevant. That's very much felt in the Gita and and what uh, uh, drew me to it. And uh, and so I I felt passionate about sharing this uh, the relevance and the um, melodiousness with uh, uh, with others. There there have been many translations. Uh, there are over 200 translations in English. Apparently, this is the, the first one that, that uh, captures the, uh, um, the original meter of the, of the, the Sanskrit uh, in English, but it was a, a personal journey more than a mission. <laughs> well, what strikes me about the Gita is the modernity of, of it. In other words, the timelessness and its relevance to issues that we encounter in society today regarding social and civil rights, for example. That's exactly right. I should mention uh, uh, Gandhi, uh, who is really the father of, of uh, civil movements. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Nelson Mandela were both uh, deeply influenced by Gandhi. And Gandhi, when he summarizes uh, uh, his own uh, beliefs and, and journey, uh, uh, he attributes it all to the Gita. There's a quote of Gandhi saying, today, the Gita is not only my Bible or my Quran. It is much more than that. It is my mother. Mm. When I seek refuge, when I seek comfort, I, I seek refuge in her bosom. So here is this spiritual giant and, and a giant of modern civil rights and, and activism who finds indeed the, 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 the Gita as, as a source of inspiration. And, and this is so because it is really with an emphasis, a very strong emphasis of the highest uh, spiritual peaks on the one hand, but on the practicality of how how do you act in this world? How do you uh, go through the day in a very down-to-earth uh, manner? And this is what uh, uh, I found uh, fascinating and, and uh, is definitely needed in, in our time and day. Um, I want to add that it took you, I believe it's 12 years to complete this translation? Yes. 
Yes, this is, um, has gone through multiple iterations. Uh, first, uh, translate, uh, tr uh, translating it to Hebrew for seven years. Uh, Hebrew is my mother tongue, so it was convenient uh, for me as a first uh, draft. And then realizing that uh, I, I uh, stumbling on to the the fact that the uh, I, I translated it without no out of my ignorance. Uh, in uh, four lines uh, for each uh, verse, uh, only to then uh, learn that that's actually the meter that it was written in Sanskrit. And so then I went back and, and uh, uh, corrected the, the meter to the exact uh, 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 meter in Sanskrit. And then I began to hear the music of it and, uh, and went through other iterations of relaxing the, the syllable count uh, so that it could... Uh, um, really a role in your mind. These are meditative verses. They are not a, a poem, uh, but a, a, a very, very powerful tool for changing uh, the way your mind uh, works. And, uh, and, and uh, other iterations of, of gently, carefully, uh, to the best of my ability, peeling away layers of mythology and terminology so that it can uh, uh, speak directly and simply to us uh, here and now. It's interesting that you, you, you speak of the Gita and the time it took to translate it. When I went through uh, yoga teacher training, we were assigned yeah. um, reading reading it as as part of the yeah. requirement for the certification. And I did so, a, a translated version, reluctantly. I did not like it, but I had the same reaction yeah. that, that you had, <laughs> in, in part because it's very difficult to understand. Well, you know, when when it's told uh, properly or with uh, the the right uh, mindset and uh, without uh, detracting from from uh, uh, from other translations, it's uh, it's really a, a question about what uh, uh, what's the text uh, for. And I translated it as a, as a yogic text, uh, um, as a, a text for inner development and one which should be therefore uh, uh, without uh, philosophical terms and and uh, and. That, that speaks uh, directly to, to us uh, here and now. Perhaps we can read a few verses and this uh, sort of gives a, a sampling of, uh, of the, the directness that, that I, I mentioned. I would love for you to read a few verses. Let's take a pause and then we'll come back and we'll continue the conversation about the Gita. We're talking with Dr. Isaac Bentwich and the book is Gita, A Timeless Guide for Our Time, to learn more, please visit newgita.com. That's the website, newgita.com. And on Facebook, New Gita Book. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Yeah, yeah. What is, what is you? 
Continuing the conversation with my guest today, Isaac Bentwich. We're talking about inner transformation, the journey to giving more and living better. Dr. Bentwich is trained as a physician and scientist. He's founded three life science technology companies. So he wears several hats, but the Gita as a yoga teacher and meditator is your passion. Yes, it is. Uh, very much so. And you wanted to read, and I'm so excited that you do. I was hoping you would, <laughs> from, from uh, Gita. Yeah. So uh, any opportunity to, to read the Gita or to speak about it is, is always something that I, I cannot uh, resist. So just to give get us into the hang of it, uh, a few verses from the, uh, the second uh, chapter. This is the beginning of this dialogue. We spoke about the, the framework. Uh, the prince is uh, um, forced into a battle and is lost. Um, uh, what should I do? Uh, reflecting the dramas of the day that we have in our life. And, and so the prince says, a veil of pity routes my heart. Mine's dark. Where does my duty lay? Guide me, master. What ought I do? I'm your disciple. Show me the way. This is actually, it gives you a, 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 a flavor of the, the, the rhythmic, the, the melodiousness there. But also this is a, a, a pivotal a statement or verse for the, the prince. This is after a long lecture. He was standing on his uh, stump, as it were. Oh, we shouldn't fight. Uh, violence is terrible, etc. He's lecturing to God or to his, his master. And here he breaks down and says, I do not know. Guide me. And this is an invitation invitation for us uh, to uh, to open our hearts uh, as well. And, and the, the master then responds, then the next verse says, Thus spoke the brave warrior prince, conqueror of sleep, master of will, I shall not fight, he added, and then spoke no more and was still. Then to him, between the two armies, disconsolate by these tormenting trials, the master ruler of senses spoke, wearing the faintest of smiles. And you can almost see the Buddha-like faint smile of the master. What are you smiling? The prince is thinking, what are you smiling? My life is in shambles. There is no, I'm, I'm in a, a dire straits. Uh, and yet this is the smile that, that is the introduction to the master, uh, the master's response. And the master says, you speak words of wisdom, O prince, but your sorrow is in vain. For the truly wise never mourn, neither the living nor the slain. Mm -hmm. There was never a time we were not, me or you or these enemy kings, nor can there be any future in which we ever cease being. So this is the, you know, the, the shattering answer of the master Hey, Prince, you got it all wrong. You're not this body. You're not this mind. Um, the basic assumption is, is, uh, is not there. Uh, one should not fear death because it is death of the body, not death of your immortal uh, soul. Uh, you're not your thoughts and your emotions. Uh, and then to make it more practical, and I'll just read one more verse uh, here. Um, he says, that, forget about philosophy. Let me draw you back to your own experience. And the next verse says, this body's dweller, the soul, the dweller in body, this body's dweller throughout life, wears bodies of child, youth, old man. At death, he but dons another. The wise grieve not, 
they understand. So you see how each verse here is really a pearl of wisdom. Listen, Prince, says the master, don't trust me for any philosophy. This is not some theory. You know uh, for yourself that you have been once in a body of a child. You had child thoughts, child's emotions, child's body. All the cells in your body have since changed. Uh, you're not that body. Then you were in a body of an adolescent with the hormones and the different a mind of an adolescent, and then in a mind of a, a mature person, and the body is getting old, and soon it will disintegrate and it will die. You're not the body. You know that from your own experience of having gone through these different bodies throughout lives. So this just gives us a tasting of um, how of the practicality of of, uh, of the Gita uh, using life itself with the challenges that it presents in order to push us uh, uh, inwards and upwards uh, towards the higher nature of, of who we are, the divine nature of who we are. And how does this divine nature, this divinity, these qualities possessed and described in the Gita about human nature and the nature of spirit and soul translate for you as a doctor and a scientist. I mean, you're in touch with people uh, on a regular basis. Um, yeah, look, uh, for me, for many years, I, I have encountered the Gita when I was in medical school. Uh, I've been exposed to yoga from a very early age, uh, um, which was fortunate. Um, uh, but uh, it was in medical school that I first encountered it. And uh, gradually, I became to uh, uh, to to grasp or to see uh, the Gita and the philosophy that it uh, uh, epitomizes as the highest science that there is uh, and mm. the deepest uh, medicine that there is. Uh, we know now in modern uh, uh, medicine that uh, stress. Uh, and, uh, you know, mind, body, this is for 20 years now has been uh, understood to, to be uh, tightly related. But uh, uh, medicine of spirit, as it were, is the next uh, revolution, um, uh, as it were, and the next uh, frontier. Of course, uh, medicine of body and of mind uh, is, is important, but the underlying uh, infrastructure of it all, uh, or at least an important aspect that, uh, for me, and in my practice and uh, or, or interaction with uh, with others, uh, is uh, helping us uh, realize uh, the uh, um, and connect to uh, to our spirit. Uh, you know, we put such great emphasis. Uh, on brushing our teeth, on eating healthy foods. Uh, I think there's not enough uh, emphasis on uh, um, maintaining a, 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 a pure diet of our thoughts and our emotions and brushing our spiritual teeth as regularly as, as, we, as we do our, our physical ones. Uh, and so uh, this is, of course, not in contradiction with the with the physical side. And in fact, this is the fascination that I've had with the, the Gita, um, that it has, uh, it puts, um, it integrates uh, dealing with the practicality of the world as well as with our uh, inner, uh, uh, inner side. Are you able to talk with patients and people with whom you meet about the Gita? Is it part of your daily experience or is it something that just transmits through the language that you use? It depends on the on the individual. I, I, I do have a, a strong passion 
uh, to share uh, this with with anyone who's interested and I view my uh, my role as a translator in a broader sense uh, translating into English but also translating into uh, the context of uh, of different uh, uh, different people to to uh, where they are the Gita uh, the whole emphasis of the Gita is is starting where we are uh, if we're at the battlefield, Let's start there is what the the Gita says. And so this is true for uh, for us as well. So so for some uh, people, uh, students or or friends or patients, uh, um, I would uh, convey the 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 essence of the teachings without calling it Gita. And in other cases, uh, this is a, a very helpful you know people that are with a serious both people who are with very serious life threatening, illnesses and that are at the end of their the life of their physical body uh, find solace and derive strength uh, from understanding from connecting to these uh, deep uh, truths and the uh, people that are very uh, healthy find uh, in it uh, the a tool a toolbox to uh, to seek deeper health not just of the body but uh, um, on our march towards our inner self uh, so I think it, it's uh, magically it is very suited to the whole spectrum of, of, of human condition. Which I would assume was the intent of its authors thousands of years ago to make it yes. uh, a universal wealth of knowledge for the inner yeah. and outer battles of life. Yeah. 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 Let me let me read you a, a couple of verses uh, here that that uh, uh, tie to this uh, the the practicality of it of uh, in a medical sense uh, almost thinking of sights and scents and sound to these sense objects bind your mind grow attached addiction you seed mm. fight addiction anger it will breed anger and you confuse your mind. Mind confused, experience you forget. Experience gone, discernment you lose. Life goal you miss if you lose that. So here is, a, is almost a description of the pathophysiology of anger, how it arises and what do we do about it. And so, and, and this beautiful tie-in of things which are very physical, and very mental and concrete, and things that are of the highest uh, spiritual realm. For the curious and those who might be challenged but interested, we're speaking of Gita, a timeless guide for our time. My guest today has been Dr. Isaac Bentwich. To learn more about the new Gita, visit newgita.com. Once again, that is newgita.com on Facebook, New Gita Book. Isaac, thank you so much for sharing this passion with us. I feel the enthusiasm that you have for what you've done, and it's admirable and so fascinating to me, the way you have taken this text and put it into a usable and relevant language for us all to, to understand. My pleasure. It's a, thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss and, uh, and share. Of course. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Stephen G. Post and Isaac Bentwich, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. And remember to stay safe out there, eh?
Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>